6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jude, verse 6. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. That thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy merchandise. Therefore, I will bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It will devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All that know thee among the people shall be appalled at thee. Thou shalt be a terror and never shalt thou be any more. By the way, the word merchandise is from the Hebrew word meaning to go about, and it can be translated either in two words, merchandising like trafficking or slander. And the word slander is the word for Satan. I mean, that's what the word Satan means, a slanderer. So it's in the other side. So the word merchandise, me, it actually comes from the, from the Hebrew root that can be translated either way. Okay, that's a little bit on his origin. We've got a little glimpse now where Satan comes from. There's a chapter in the Bible that describes in one sort of summary overview his whole strategy and goals. And that's Revelation chapter 12. And it might be useful to take the time to review Revelation chapter 12 briefly. Revelation chapter 12, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon on her feet, upon her head twelve, uh, a crown of twelve stars, and she being with child, traveled, uh, uh, cried, traveling in birth, and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven, and it cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered, to devour her child as soon as it was born. Verse 5, And she brought forth a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared by God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now, I'm not going to make this a study of the book of Revelation. That would really derail us, but there's a few key points here. The first question is, to understand the various people that are going to be introduced here, the first question is, who is the red dragon? You don't have to guess. Because in verse 9, he's defined for you. As you read later in the chapter, it says in verse 9, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, to deceive at the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. This is where we understand that Satan rebelled and was thrown out. When you put Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 and Revelation 12 together, and there's lots more, but those are the, probably the three key passages to sort of try to synthesize, to try to get an understanding here. Satan clearly was very powerful at one time, was perfect at one time, was in charge, rebelled. A third of the angels apparently were allied with him, and they blew it and were thrown out. 
So we know who the red dragon is in this scenario. The next question is, and this is where most people get screwed up, is who's the woman? And it's very tempting. There are many commentators that are very competent commentators that identify the woman with the church. And I love the way Chuck Smith puts it. If, the, if this woman is the church, she's in trouble because she's pregnant. The church uniformly is used in the New Testament as a virgin bride, not a one to give birth. The woman is identified up here with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. That's not the zodiac. There's only one place that the sun and moon and 12 stars show up in the scripture. And your principle in the book of Revelation is every, the entire thing's in code. Everything in there is in code, but every code is deciphered somewhere in the scripture. The Holy Spirit's engineered the book so it would take you into every other passage in the Bible if you take it exhaustively. And the only place you'll find 12 stars, sun and moon, is, remember, Joseph's dreams. Jacob understood the dream. Joseph, remember, he first had the sheaves that bowed, there were 11 sheaves that bowed down to his sheaf and so forth. Then the next dream, he, and he told that to his brothers, he was already a little unpopular. Um, <laughs> and you can understand the brother's point of view. Um, then he had this dream where this, there were the stars, and 11 of the stars and the sun and the moon bowed down to him. And at that point, he told that dream around. Not only does his brothers get upset, but Jacob, his father, got a little miffed by it. Are your mother and I going to bow down before you also? See, he recognized Jacob, and he rebuffed the youth that way, but in so doing, gave us an identity. What are, who is the woman that is, is crowned with the sun and the moon and the twelve stars? Idiomatically, in the scripture, Israel, in a way. It's Israel in the sense that she starts with Eve. Because the man-child is the seed of the woman. What woman? Israel, in the, not Israel in the sense of starting with Abraham. Israel in the sense that she starts with God's declaration of war on Satan. The declaration of war on Satan is Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman. What woman? The woman of chapter 12 of Revelation. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Two seeds. The seed of the woman is a biological contradiction in the Hebrew. The seed is the man. All of us have had enough biology to understand that phraseology. The seed of the woman is a, in the grammar of the Hebrew, predicts the virgin birth. And in Isaiah 7, 14 and in Matthew, it is the virgin, not a virgin. Proper name, very important. So the man-child thus is whom? Jesus Christ. Who gives birth to Jesus Christ, conceptually speaking here? Not the church. Israel. Israel was ordained from Eve on. God's plan was to present the deliverer. That was his commitment to Adam. Now, we see here, though, that the woman is being with child, traveling in birth, pain to be delivered. And this is idiomatically speaking of all history in an overview. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, behold, a great dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and, upon, and so forth, and his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven. The stars of heaven being an idiom for angels, we find that a third of them rebelled with them. And what did they do? They stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, one thing you can understand, one thing that's interesting if we had the time, and I think we do when we go through Revelation 12, we start with Genesis and go through the scripture and review the whole history in the Bible as Satan's plan to thwart the will of God. The first, it starts at 3.15. There's going to be a deliverer. So what does Satan first do? Go after the seed of Eve. 
We got Cain and Abel. Satanically, that was an attempt to get rid of the seed. It was Seth, neither Cain nor Abel. Fine. But as we go through the scripture, as God reveals more and more of his plan, it allows Satan to focus his attack. When it becomes, when the call of Abraham occurs, he doesn't have to mess around with anybody else. He can mess with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. As God confirms his covenant, when it becomes a tribe of Judah, it's Judah. And all through the scripture, you find again and again, plot and counterplot. You have several occasions where all the babies are killed. Moses and the infants. That was Pharaoh, no, it was Satan. Because he's, he's got a thwart the, the, the messianic threat. Go all the way through to, uh, um, well, Bethlehem. It wasn't Herod slaughtering the babes, it was satanic. He was just the instrument. All through the kings, you find the children that are heirs, hidden by someone, and attempts to slaughter all the kids but missing the one. Well, we could go on about that. But the point is, the concept of anti-Semitism isn't just noxious because it's racial prejudice. Racial prejudice of any kind, I'm sure, is an offense to God. But anti-Semitic tides and trends and so forth go even deeper. As you understand the scripture, you understand that Satan's objective is to thwart the messianic plan. And his attempt at that is to attack Israel. It's interesting here. Verse 5 says that the woman brought forth a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Again, or to the Psalm 110 and several other places that identify that as whom? Christ. In fact, uh, Psalm 2, I guess, is where it occurs, yeah. Um, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Kind of interesting. Verse 5 seems to appear historical. The ascension, right? Verse 6 looks ahead at the tribulation. Okay? Those of you that have studied Daniel 9 are not uncomfortable about the idea of a gap in the timeline. God deals with Israel. Those prophets that deal with Israel ignore a period of time between Jesus Christ and his second coming. We call it the church age. That gap occurs between verses 26 and 27 of Daniel 9, if you remember that study. It also occurs here. There are 1,900 years that have occurred between verses 5 and 6 so far. That gap appears how many times in the scripture? Make a guess. No, more than that. What is the number of the church? 24. Remember the 24 elders? There are 24 occasions like this in the scripture, which I think is interesting for those of you that are mystics. And by the way, another thought to just confuse you further, and her child was caught up to God in his throne, and then the woman fled into the wilderness. I always used to view that as the ascension of our Lord. But there's a guy by the name of Pember who wrote a book about Genesis and the ancient Earth's earliest ages. And it blew me away because he sees this differently. And I don't know that he's wrong. He sees this in the language the, the, uh, that her child was caught up to God in his throne. He sees that child as the body of Christ. He sees in that the rapture. Isn't that wild? It doesn't alter the text because what happens in verse 6 on is tribulational, as we would label it. 
I'm saying that erroneously because all of us fall into the fiction of visualizing a seven-year tribulation period. That's not the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is the last half of that seven-year period. But I don't want to get into that time. Now, um, the attack of Satan on Israel is part of prophecy. And it climaxes in a period of time which the Old Testament calls the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel refers to that as a period of tribulation such as the world had not seen to that day or ever would see again. And Jesus Christ, in his private briefing to four disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, in the Olivet Discourse, quotes from Daniel. And it's in Christ's quote from Daniel that that period of time gets its classical label among Bible scholars, the Great Tribulation. But in that, we, over, we easily forget the focus of the tribulations in the world at large. It's Israel. But think about what that phrase means. Most of us, the more you know about the Holocaust in Germany, the more you understand their plea, never again. you got tragic news. What's coming yet future is going to make that look like a warm-up. Our Lord said, a time of trouble such as the world had not seen to that time. And that time's yet future. So whatever's happened in the past has been a prelude. Now, what made the Holocaust possible? The philosophy of Nietzsche and others. The notion that the, uh, the, the rationale, philosophically or religiously, that Israel was uh, somehow appropriately tromped on fallacies of the church for 1900 years made that possible. And if you watch over the next few years, you're going to see in the Christian body, charismatic as well as fundamental, teachers who will argue a theology that has as one of its, beside being full of all kinds of other error, has as its attribute the prelude to anti-Semitism. And I'm saying this not out of a sociological concern for Israel. I'm saying this out of a prophetical interest in the Scripture. That when you see that, on the one hand, you may, as you see it surface, you may experience shock. On the other hand, you can praise God because it means the time is getting close. Because when Ezekiel 38 happens, when the Soviets invade Israel and five, six of them get wiped out, the Lord makes it very clear that it happens by His hand, not the comfort and support of the United States. Sometime between here and the tribulation period, the United States, along with all the other countries, will turn on Israel. And God is going to use that occasion, just as he did in Egypt, to show his hand on his people again. The Bible makes that clear. We talked about that last time, read from Ezekiel 36, that his purpose in doing so is not because they deserve it. They'll be in unbelief when this all happens, or at least when it starts. He does it because he made promises before the heathen that he would do it, and it's for his name's sake before the heathen that he's going to keep those promises for Israel's best behalf. Okay, we got off the subject, but I wanted to tie that prophetically to what we're talking about there. So we have some insight, perhaps, on, uh, on Satan's goals and objectives. Let's turn to Matthew 25. But in chapter Matthew 25, verse 41 is the sheep and goat judgments, as we sometimes call it. In verse 41, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Prepared for whom? Prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, it's just a New Testament, uh, or a gospel, uh, a confirmation of what we've mentioned before. Okay, uh, we know that there 
Another way of looking at this is that there are two governing bodies to be punished. Isaiah 24, the turn with me to Isaiah 24. We've been at this a lot when we, we, uh, as we go through the scripture, but um, uh, where the earth shall reel to, verse 20, where the earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a booth and the, so on. And verse 21, and, the, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish two groups of people shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. See, this business of revelation, the climax, and all of that isn't just on people. It's on the high ones that are on high, whoever they are. Satan and his angels are not bound yet. They're free. They may have some restrictions, obviously, but I mean the point is they're not bound. They will be. They're not yet. Um, some are, and that's what Jude's talking about. And we're, 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 believe it or not, we're, we're making our way that way. There's much more being redeemed than you and I. Because the climax in Isaiah, and Re Isaiah says, I behold, I see a new heavens and a new earth. It's not only the earth that's redeemed. Heaven itself is cleansed. So it's a complicated issue, and that's a whole other study you can chase on your own. But one of the questions that we're going to face is, are demons angels? Now, let me point out to you that there are those that make a big distinction between demons and angels. Angels apparently have the capability of being embodied by themselves. We find angels um, in human form. Genesis 19, verses 5, 10, and 16. They spoke as men. They took people's hand. They ate food with them. The angels appeared to have no necessity to be embodied. There's no occasion that I know of, with one exception maybe, uh, of them being embodied. There's a place where Satan entered Judas, but that may be a special situation. In contrast to that, the demons are a whole other story. Uh, the, the, perhaps the most bizarre one, and you know me, I love bizarre passages, so we might turn to, well, one thing, let's turn to Acts 23.9 first. Because there, um, this supports a view that uh, some hold that demons and angels are not the same thing. Uh, Acts 23, verse 9, it says, uh, the Pharisees, scribes who were of the Pharisees' party rose and contended sharply, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And the only reason I'm pointing that out, the conception, at least at that time, was that demons, or spirits, and angels are two different things. And uh, so that's one of the things you come into. And the more you study demonology, and there are some good books on that. Merrill Unger has a book on biblical demonology. It's very, very comfortable for a layman, yet quite, uh, uh, quite uh, thorough and, and useful if you're interested in that sort of thing. But uh, you might turn with me to Luke 8. Figure out about verse 26. And they arrived at the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. And when he went forth to the land, there met him out of a city, a certain man who had demons for a long time, and he wore no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs, and he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before them, and cried out with a loud voice, says, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high, I beseech thee, torment me not. That's a shock if you're reading the Gospels, because at this, up to this point, he has not acknowledged his role. And, and that comes later. So the, the, the personage inside this tormented person recognize something beyond the knowledge of the people at that time. In terms of our understanding of demons, they're knowledgeable. This is not something that just some crackpot, demented person would say. He had not announced his real role. The fact that they recognized 
his deity, the Son of God, Most High, I beseech thee, torment me not. Now they know that out of this we learn that they know who he is, they know that they're destined for torment, and they know it's at a very specific time. Verse 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for often it had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and fetters, and he broke the bonds and was driven out of the demon into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, what is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many demons are entered into him. Legion is not a thousand, by the way. A Roman legion is 6,000 troops. So when you say, that's the first legion, the second, third, and fourth legions are smaller. It's the way the Romans organized. But I'm just, the point is, a legion is a lot. Huh? The demons in this man ultimately go into a herd of swine. You know how many are in the herd of swine? Mark tells us 2,000. That's a large herd. I used to be bothered, what are they doing raising swine in kosher country? The answer is it's not kosher country. It's on the east of the Jordan. There's a, they're the Greek cities of the Decapolis. There were five cities that were Gentile. And so it was understandable. In that sense, you know, economically, you can understand why there were swine at all being raised. You wouldn't expect that in Judea. There may have been there, too, to support the Gentile contingency. But the point is, this is near the Decapolis, the five cities that uh, were supported this way. So many, and they, they besought him that he, that he would not command them to go out into the abuso. Now, this is one of those passions of the Bible I don't understand. They do beseech him, don't send us back to the pit, which is apparently one of the places he would normally do. If he cast them out, they go back to the abuso, apparently permanently, or not permanently, but anyway, for a long time. And they ask him, please don't do that. Cast us into that herd of swine. The first question is, that gives us some insight. I mean, I'm not sure what you do with that piece of information, but what puzzles me even more is the Lord Greece. He lets them do that. Why does he do that? I don't know. Maybe just to teach us that these things are not euphemisms for psychiatric problems and so forth, you know. I mean, there are people who, who uh, uh, you know, read the Bible and figure, well, those are just idioms of, for things that we now give psychiatric terms for them. The people who say that have never attended an exorcism, or they would know better. There was, there was there a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would allow them to enter into them, and he permitted them. Then when the demons out of the man entered into the swine, and the herd went violently down a steep place into the lake, and they were choked. And they that fed them saw what was done. They fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. And he obviously becomes very unpopular because he affected the economy of that range. So anyway, uh, and I don't want to make this a whole study of demonology, but I do want to be at least sense of the fact that demons seem to be something quite different than what you and I think of as angels. So there are those that make, the, make a big thing of that difference, which raises a bizarre question, where, the, where do the demons come from? If they're not angels, what are they? Where do they come from? And there are all kinds of bizarre ideas that have no scriptural basis that are really built within the, the uh, gaps, if you will, from what we do understand. There are those that believe that there was a pre-Adamite creation that was destroyed and judged, and the demons are the disembodied spirits of that particular creation. There's no, spiritual, there's no scriptural evidence for that. They place all this hypothesis between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. That's part of the gap theory that gets way out in left field, that I... It has only one problem, there's no basis for it. That doesn't mean it's right or wrong, you can't tell, it's just somebody's idea. But there is apparently some difference between demons and angels, and so in that whole thing you can, you know, if you've got nothing to talk about over a cup of coffee, a piece of pie at 2 a.m., you can argue about whether demons and angels are the same thing. Now, actually, I personally believe that there's a large hierarchy of all kinds of these creatures. Uh, in the Old Testament, we have the Shirim, the Sirim, the Lilith, uh, the Tissim, and some others. 
And they're all translated in the Septuagint as demons, but they're different Hebrew words. The Shirim are the mighty ones, and they show up in Deuteronomy 32:17. The Sirim are he goats or satires. They're hairy creatures that are they're worn out, but they're demonic, but they were uh, uh, embodied in legends as the satires and so forth. And the others have other names, and they have slightly different attributes. But when we speak in the New Testament, principalities and powers and so forth, those are ranks, if you will. And so angels apparently come in different kinds, and it could very well be that the demons are no more than a if you will, a junior disembodied spirit that is part of that rebellion that we read about in Revelation 12. So with all this digression, you say, we now are equipped. Now, incidentally, I don't, this, we talked about the second view. Item one was, you can't tell about what verse six means in Jude. Item two was it has to do with the fall of Satan and the angels. Not directly, because I think the fall of Satan and those and those angels and all of that, number one, are not bound. The ones that Jude are talking about are bound. They're in chains of darkness, right? Reserved unto judgment. Satan is not, at least not yet. That happens at the end of the tribulation before the, the millennium. But what about his angels? They're pretty free to do mischief. Because that's all yet future. So what on earth are we talking about in Jude 7? That leads us to a passage in the Bible that's very, very strange. That's Genesis 6. This is the third view. Genesis chapter 6. We all know about Noah's flood, but I don't think one person in a hundred knows the reason for Noah's flood, except in maybe a very broad sense. Yes, there was wickedness, and the wickedness was very widespread, and God chose to wipe out the known earth at that time, or all the whole earth at that time. I don't think there's anything local about the flood, by the way. But Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 has a phrase that scholars sort of wince and squirrel around trying to explain. Uh, you know, it's amazing how much trouble you can get into, how much work you can put on yourself if you decide not to accept what the Bible tells you. You know, um, there are people that spend years of study trying to talk about First Isaiah and Second Isaiah because they've never read John 12, where John says that, you know, that there was one Isaiah that wrote both parts, etc. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.